This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome back to The Spectator's Podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast. So why is money draining from Britain? In this week's issue, Ross Clark says it's because of Corbyn, not Brexit. We also look at Italy, where growth is a distant memory, the economy is stagnating and youth unemployment is at 35%. The Italian government and the EU are at loggerheads about how to solve this. So is Italy the next Eurosceptic time bomb? And finally, we look at what it's like to write a biography for somebody who can't stand you. In the last two years, investors have pulled more than $20 billion from British equity funds. In this week's cover story, Ross Clark argues that perhaps surprisingly, this is more because of fear of a Corbyn government than because of Brexit. So, is that a fair claim? I'm joined by Liam Halligan, economics columnist for the Sunday Telegraph, and Grace Blakely, research fellow at the IPPR. So Liam, do you think Ross is right to say that money is draining from Britain because of Corbyn rather than Brexit? I think he's certainly right that there's been an outflow of cash under some headings, I mean, part of that is just because the dollar is acting like a huge vortex at the moment, sucking in cash from all over the world. That's because the Federal Reserve, America's mighty central bank, is, of course, raising rates. It's raised rates over half a dozen times in the last couple of years, and the dollar's going up, and that's drawing money in from everywhere, the UK included. On the other hand, Lara, we've just had numbers out, almost unreported in the financial press, surprise, surprise, showing that Britain was second only in the world to China in the first half of 2018 at at attracting FDI, that's big money, foreign direct investment. The UK, despite Brexit, you might say, beat even the US on that count. Yet having said that, Ross is onto something. I've spoken to people in the city and wealth managers and so on who say that their wealthy, well-heeled clients are removing money from the UK concerned more about Corbyn than about Brexit, in my view. Brexit's been baked in for a long time. And even if we leave, even if we end up making a clean break, I think there's a sense that the damage that Brexit could do is less than the damage that Corbyn could do. Corbyn's got a lot of good ideas, and some of them I even agree with, certainly in terms of his analysis, but I don't always agree with his solutions. And I think a lot of other mainstream people in finance share that view. Grace, do you think we should be worried about this money that's leaving the country? I think it has to be contextualised in terms of some much like longer term changes that have, have taken place in our economy over the last kind of 40 years. And Liam's actually quite right to point out that um, what we've had since the first evaluation of sterling, which took place after the crash when it fell about 30%, the, the dynamics that determine the value of a currency have really shifted. Prior to 2007, we had a lot of uh, inflows via our financial accounts. So inflows into um, assets like the kind of um, mortgage-backed securities and, and various form of, of, of debt obligations um, and into our, our property sector and our finance sector more broadly. And since the crisis, we have had a lot more what's called foreign direct investment. A huge amount of that has been foreign companies buying up 
UK companies or equities in UK companies because they look artificially cheap because of the exchange rate, especially given that a lot of those companies earn a lot of their money abroad. So the macro trends that are affecting the capital flows that are coming in and out of the UK are much more important than any decisions by, you know, high net worth individuals to go and move to Switzerland. Having said that, I think, you know, the, the, the frame for the debate is interesting because there's no kind of understanding of the, the, the kind of structural mechanisms that underpin the ability for people to move their money around the world. Of course, you know, what Corbyn's proposing in the manifesto is not that different to uh, a lot of kind of social democratic policies that were pursued in the post-war period. Of course, what was the difference? Well, we had Bretton Woods and we had capital controls. And, you know, today, since really the, the 70s, when financial globalization has taken off, there's been effectively no restrictions on the ability of capital to move around most countries in the global north. And that has had severe impacts. It's had this effect on tax competition. It's, um, you know, led to the the growth of these tax havens. And it has meant that, you know, um, investors are able to make these threats and say, we will move if you don't, you know, pursue policies that we like. Aside from the kind of, you know, democratic aspects of that as to whether or not it's legitimate to have investors attempting to kind of undermine uh, the will of a democratic government. It's not inevitable that that's the way the economy has to work. I mean, Liam, do you think some of these stories that Ross is talking about, sort of anxious wealth managers and wealthy families moving to Switzerland are actually quite appealing, actually quite helpful for Corbyn's cause? Yeah, there'll probably be a feather in, in his cap. You know, this is a guy that tweets out the super rich are on borrowed time. There's no votes for Corbyn among, you know, non-doms who live in Mayfair, that's for sure. Uh, and it's even a bit of a badge of honour for him if some of the, the super rich are seen to be fleeing. But, you know, in the end, it's not the super rich that pay taxes, not least because they're very, very good at avoiding them. It's the top 10% of earners, often whom are people on, you know, relatively modest incomes in the grand scheme of things. And I think that. You know, a lot of people do agree, including me, when Corbyn, you know, when he said it in his Liverpool conference speech that the political and corporate establishment strained every sinew to bail out and prop up the system that led to the 2008 financial crisis. You know, I agree with that. And I'm a columnist on the on the Telegraph. And I'm sure Grace agrees with that. The question is, it's not the analysis. He's right. Capitalism isn't working properly for an awful lot of people. But I wouldn't respond to the fact that it isn't working properly for an awful lot of people by coming in with really draconian changes, you know, massive increases in the top rate of income tax, massive increases in the top rate of corporation tax, rent controls, for instance, on private landlords, because all those things will be counterproductive and the economy will less up, end up less well off. What you need are, are less kind of headline grabbing but more difficult to implement, but nonetheless historically more effective changes to things like competition policy, things like making sure that businesses actually compete. This is where the Tories are making such a huge error because the Tories, so many of them think that to be pro-capitalism is to be pro-big business. Often to be pro-capitalism is to kick big business in the shins because they're monopolists and because they're preventing effective competition. I think if Corbyn talked more about that, if he was more into antitrust and things like that, then he'd get a much better hearing, I think, across middle England. When he just bangs the drum and comes up with, frankly, Marxist nostrums, that scares the bejesus out of ordinary swing voters. The swing voters he needs, if he's going to convert this kind of populist surge 
into the keys to 10 Downing Street and a proper programme for government. Grace, I mean, can you see why people are so scared about a Corbyn government? I can definitely see why, you know, the super rich are, are worried about a Corbyn government. I think what's interesting about it is that it's not just, you know, a purely, it's not just a material thing. I think when you look at the psychology of wealth, you know, there's obviously a concern that they're going to be losing some wealth. I think the broader concern is what kind of society, you know, a Labour government would want to bring in. Because at the moment, you know, you have effectively a society in which the wealthiest are taught to believe that they are, you know, above the law, above, you know, the vast majority of the rest of the society, above kind of democratic control and accountability. And actually, you know, bringing in an order which, you know, promotes equity and actually, you know, respects human beings' right to earn a living, you know, regardless of where they're born and all that sort of thing is is kind of threatening and almost like a kind of existential level to these people that have been taught that they are, you know, incredibly special and members of this, you know, international capitalist class that are completely unaccountable to democratic control. And I think this comes back to a central question that has existed at the heart of liberal democracy ever since its inception. Someone in the piece says, you know, what can we do to protect our money against Jeremy Corbyn? And really what he's saying is what can we do to protect our money against the people? You know, we've amassed vast amounts of wealth, often by extraction rather than, you know, we have this neoclassical myth that inequality is justified because um, the wealthy are the ones that create prosperity for everyone else. And so in that sense, you know, they're saying, right, how do we protect our ill-gotten gains from democracy and part of the way that they've done this for the last 20 years is by pushing this this narrative that um you know tax rises don't work and uh, you know markets should be free and governments should keep out and claiming that that has some sort of basis in economic fact whatever economic fact would look like rather than it's actually being a political project to do what these people are are trying to do now which is protect as i said their money from democratic accountability and you know that is the really central battle that's taking place here. It's about whether or not these people who have basically spent the last 40 years extracting money out of the British economy and the global economy are and can be made to be accountable to the democratic process. Liam, do you want to respond to that? I think there's a lot of storytelling on both sides. Sometimes the Tories say that Labour are completely mad and there's nothing in their analysis of the failures of capitalism at all. On the other side, Labour say that the Tories only wanted to reduce the budget deficit when it was 10% of GDP because they're free market headbangers. What we actually need is a little bit of light and shade here. We need to make, I don't think we need to junk capitalism at all because it's the best possible system that we've had having tried so many others over the years. But I do think we need to, to regulate it better. That doesn't mean more regulation, that means smarter regulation. And I do think we need to get really serious with these big business vested interests that are stopping competition from working because that's in the end what really stitches up ordinary men and women when they can't buy a house because not enough houses are being built because the house builders are an oligopoly for instance or when they're getting stitched up by their privatized utilities the problem isn't necessarily the utilities are privatized the problem is that the utilities and the politicians are so cozy and hand in glove that regulation isn't working properly I think what we need to really get hold of here, though, when we're looking at the Corbyn agenda, is that some of the things he's saying, while I agree with some of the analysis, as I've said and written repeatedly, and I'm totally with Grace on that, 
some of the policy options are just mad. I mean, look, to try and to say that it's OK in the fifth biggest economy in the world to basically expropriate 10 percent of the shares of every listed company in under under the guise of giving the dividends from those shares to workers. But then in the fine print, it says, oh, the dividend to workers would only be would be capped at 500 quid a year. That's a massive property grab by the state. And that really isn't going to help the British economy in any way. That, I'm afraid, is student politics. People's QE is also student politics. You know, crack open a history book and you'll see that in the end, if you blatantly just print money, we've got quite close to it over the last 10 years. But to have people's QE where you're just blatantly printing money, I mean, that is just a, a slam dunk recipe to mix my metaphors for a sterling crisis, a collapse in the currency, an interest rate spike, an inflation spike, and the super rich will be sitting in Monaco, hoovering up the assets uh, that have just crashed. Great, do you think that's right? It's Corbyn offering student politics. I think I'll respond to each of those points in turn. So firstly, there was a point about big business and competition. Secondly, about the ownership funds. And finally, about people's QE. And on the point about big business, I completely agree that the lack of competition is is strangulating economic growth, putting downward pressure on wages and uh, harming consumers. The question is whether or not you think that that tendency towards monopoly is an inherent tendency within capitalism or whether it's the result of bad policy. Now, there are a lot on the left who would argue that it's actually the former and I think you know save for the post-war period when we did have kind of controls on on capital mobility which played a particularly strong role in, in well kind of muting the emergence of those global global monopolies and you know at the global level you're seeing the emergence and you have seen since again since the 80s since the collapse of Bretton Woods the emergence of massive global monopolies which are um, you know effectively taunting national governments saying you cannot regulate us and you know even if you could you shouldn't because it would be bad for growth or whatever kind of ridiculous justifications they use and uh, you know it's simply not enough just to say oh we're going to crank up competition policy you know at at the moment it's not just that the competition law doesn't work it's the the enforcement of the cma you know how is the cma supposed to say to amazon or google or facebook you know you have too much market share we're going to break you up where is the kind of the levers for control over these things you know i think what labor's doing in terms of thinking about like developing national alternative platforms to kind of help to steer domestic consumers away from using these huge behemoths is quite a good place to start but more broadly again you know we need to think about this model of financial globalization that has allowed for constant M&A activity that has led to concentrations of um, ownership in every sector and the emergence of, you know, something like five companies own, uh, are responsible for like 90% of global food supply. Don't quote me on that, but it's something along those lines. It's a tendency that you see in all different markets uh, and which is kind of exemplified by what we're seeing in, in the tech companies at the moment, but which, you know, it's very difficult to argue that that is not an inevitable outcome of a kind of system of extreme free market capitalism, global capitalism that we've seen since the 80s. When it comes to the kind of, you know, is this schoolyard politics? I mean, the the way you have to understand the ownership funds is that it, it's about democratizing and socializing ownership. It's not a kind of small, immediate policy fix. It's about, you know, who owns and who gains the returns from 
economic growth. And what we've seen since, uh, again, since the 80s is the emergence of this gap between what workers' wages, median wages and productivity. The fact that, you know, uh, the owners of, pr- of production are taking a larger share in terms of profits from output than they are remunerating workers with. And this has led to a secular decline in the labor share of national income, as you know, people like Piketty have frequently pointed out. And this is what the the ownership stuff is meant to tackle, because it's only going to get worse as you get, you know, higher levels of automation that will increase returns to capital. This is about dealing with the economy of the future, as well as kind of making things slightly fairer today. You know, and ultimately over the long, long term, kind of democratizing ownership and moving away from this model of, of uh private asset ownership as the route to wealth is the only way to prevent the kind of, you know, Minskyan dynamics associated with uh, asset price inflation that we saw before the crash. In terms of people's QE, I mean, you know, I think open a textbook and you'll see that it never works. The, the only countries that have ever experienced sovereign debt crises are either those that don't have control over their own monetary policy or those which borrow in a foreign currency. And the UK is not subject to either of those factors. And so, you know, it does have much more wiggle room to be able to use things like people's QE in order to expand economic output if it needed to do so. Of course, you know, it's uh, potentially you know, only at the zero lower bound that that's necessarily going to be useful and obviously it needs to be combined with sorry the zero bound which is where uh, interest rates can not be lowered anymore and obviously needs to be combined with more active fiscal policy and I think Labour's fiscal credibility rule is a good uh, you know it it combines the use of monetary and fiscal policy for investment purposes uh, relatively well you know that isn't playground politics that's kind of fairly accepted mainstream economics so yeah I kind of take issue with that characterization. Of course, capitalism is inherently prone to monopoly. We've known that since Adam Smith uh, in the theory of model sentiments and the wealth of nations. But the problem is the reason we've had uh, the growth of big behemoth business capitalism in the last 10 to 20 years is because politicians on both left and right, New Labour and the Democrats, have got far too close to business and are mesmerised by business. And uh, and we have a political class that's unable to properly and smartly regulate because they're so craven and keen on getting a job in business after they've left politics. And if you're thinking that you can impose capital controls in the UK, again, I just think that is historically and now technologically illiterate in a world of you know, cryptocurrencies and other major financial centers emerging around the world. And as for the, the 10% share grab, is this on listed companies? It is, is, if it's only on listed companies, you're just going to drive more companies off the stock exchange. There'll be less ability for ordinary men and women to, to take a stake in companies and hold shares. They'll all be privately held? Does it include holding companies, land owning companies, real estate companies? I mean, where do you draw the line? We've just seen, despite Brexit, despite the constant drumbeat of negativity about our economy from the mainstream media and politicians of all the main parties, we've just seen Britain chalk up more foreign direct investment in the first six months of this year than any other country in the world, apart from China. And the surest fire way to stop that kind of investment and and whack international confidence in our economy at a time of big upheaval, as Ross admits in his piece, is to say that we're going to expropriate uh, a tenth uh, of each company that's legally held. Thank you, Liam and Grace. 
Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. Next, the Italian government is trying to kickstart a stagnant economy. It's got terrible youth unemployment, public debt that is 131% of its GDP, and it's just one rung away from junk status on its credit rating. The populist government is trying to spend its way out of the rut, but its budget has just been rejected by Brussels because it exceeds EU regulations on spend and debt. So, what does this all mean? I'm joined by Ferdinando Giuliano, economics columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and Matthew Goodwin, an expert on populism. So, Ferdinando, can you start by telling us why Italy's budget is causing quite so many problems right now? So the problem with the Italian budget is, is twofold. The main one, I think, is economic and is the fact that Italy is now basically ditched the objective of reducing the budget deficit and actually reaching budget balance over the medium term. It's basically said we're going to increase spending and cutting taxes more than expected for next year, but we'll continue to do that over the next two years. And that, I think, is uh, really freaking out some investors who really you know, are pretty worried about the sustainability of Italy's public debt, which is, stands at 130% of gross domestic product. But I think more broadly, there is a political issue, which is linked to the fact that at the moment, investors fear that you know, really the populist leaders of the coalition of Five Star and the League are in control of economic policy in the country. Remember, since the creation of this government you know, in the spring, the finance minister Giovanni Tria, a technocrat, had managed to convince investors that you know, ultimately he would be in charge of deciding the economic policy in the government and ultimately he would strike a compromise with the rest of the European uh, Union. This ended up not being the case. Italy's budget has been rejected by the European Commission and uh, we are moving towards a a possible unprecedented fine from uh, the Commission. Now, I think this is still quite unlikely. There is still room for negotiation, but it's giving us a sense of who's in charge, who's in control in Italy at the moment. Matthew, do you think this is fairly sensible fiscal behaviour from the EU, even if it does enrage the Italians? Well, I mean, it's certainly an approach that they would consider to be broadly consistent with Eurozone stability. The problem, of course, is that within that monetary union, you have some considerable disparities between you know, North and South, for example. And if you're an average Italian voter in the South of the country, you're generally feeling as though actually being part of the Euro currency hasn't necessarily improved your standard of living, increase your wages or, or, or bolstered your economic situation. But I think the the broader the broader significance of this moment, particularly for, for the EU and, and perhaps the Eurozone, is that until now I think the EU was fairly used to dealing with predictable political actors or actors that would inevitably bow down to the EU. And I think with Salvini and De Mao, who, you know, this morning looking at the polls between them, their parties have 61% of the vote, you know, 
I think are less predictable, much less predictable, and probably instinctively more willing to stand up to the EU on these kinds of issues, whether it is around the budget deficit or whether it is around the refugee crisis. And so I do think I'd agree with Fernando, we are entering into somewhat uncharted territory. Fernando, how is all of this seen in Italy? I mean, do, do the Italians like Salvini's decision to stand up to the EU or do they think it's quite risky? Well, there are, I mean, Italians are being quite, quite schizophrenic at the moment because on the one hand, yes, support for uh, the two parties is still strong. Now, I, I would caveat what Matt has said. Support for the league is strengthening a lot. I mean, uh, it's nearly double. It, the league is doubling, uh, is polling nearly double where it was at the election in March. Whereas the support for the five-star movement is still high, but coming down a fair bit which clearly makes for a rocky situation for the coalition because one partner, the, the senior partner, is seeing, seeing its gains slip. But overall, yes, I think support in particular for Salvini is, is, is strong. On the other hand, however, support for the euro is also going up. And I think this is a consequence of the fact that many Italians are actually, yes, they may have not seen great benefits from the single currency, but are still terrified of the consequences of leaving it, both in terms of financial stability, but also uh, trade. How would uh, a, a, a Italy, an Italy which is out of the uh, euro and possibly out of the EU, uh, trade with, uh, with the rest of Europe? So uh, it's a bit of a schizophrenic situation. One possible resolution for this is that Italians keep supporting a strong men, such as Salvini, which stand up to the EU, but these strong men don't really have the political support or don't feel they have the political support to go down all the way in that confrontation, which would obviously, could obviously risk Italy's membership of the, of the monetary union. Matthew, Nick says in his piece that the clash between Italy's populists and the EU imperialists could destroy the single currency. I mean, do you think that's a genuine risk? I don't think that is necessarily a, a likely outcome, but, but I, I do think over the longer term, the EU has a more serious issue with populism than we, than we even acknowledge today. And the reason I say that is if you just look, as we just heard, that just the pace of political change that we're witnessing, that in a very small period of time, you know, Lega has ballooned from being quite a small, independent, northern regionalist movement into basically eating its way through the Berlusconi and I think also increasingly the five-star electorate now polling, you know, well in excess of what it polled at the election. Meanwhile, we look at Germany. The German party system is imploding, is polarising rapidly. The Greens replacing the centre-left, the AFD dragging the centre-right over to the right, you know, and then Hungary, Poland, Sweden... You know, we're obviously dealing with the lingering debate over Brexit and we've got those European Parliament elections in the spring. So longer term, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm far more pessimistic about the EU's ability to resolve the political volatility because in order to do so, it's going to have to find unity on the economic sphere between North and South. And as we see with Italy, that's not easily found. And on the identity sphere between East and West, and as we see with Hungary and Poland and Article 7, that isn't easily fixed. So I don't see the source of strength that's going to allow the EU to, to gather pace over the coming years. I think the EU will inevitably be forced to actually cede some territory and cede some powers back to nation states. Well, Nick talks in his piece about Emmanuel Macron and says that he's 
seems like he wants to to do that and create great unity across the Eurozone. I mean, do you think that's just a pipe dream? Could he could he do that? Well, I think he could do that, but I don't think he is doing that. I think Macron is very weak. His approval ratings are weak. He's losing domestic political support among voters, who again were striking last week. I think if you just contrast Salvini and, and Macron as an example, Macron's approvals are about 25%. Salvini's are about 60%. And I think if you you know if you go back one year, the front page, you know, The Economist had Macron and Merkel as the new powerhouse of Europe. Well, Merkel's going and Macron is a shadow of his former self. Meanwhile, you know, this year, Time magazine had Salvini on the front cover. He was the new face of Europe. And you have that alliance between you know, Salvini and Orban and the Austrian radical right and the Germans and so on. And I don't necessarily think that populism is, is actually going to sort of you know, win the day as such and, and actually thwart the sort of liberal conception of Europe. But I do think it's going to have some very powerful indirect effects on the mainstream, dragging the mainstream over to the right on issues of identity, refugees, migration, and also potentially have quite a strong economic effect. Because the one thing now that we didn't see in earlier years that we see today is that national populism is meeting a lot of their cousins on the left by advocating a more protectionist, a more redistributive form of economics, whereas in the 90s they were far more economically liberal. Fernando Salvini has said he doesn't want to cave in and he's also talked about this idea of a plan B for a parallel currency. Can you tell us a bit about that and whether that could actually materialise? Well, I think you need to understand that there is a bit of an internal struggle going on within the League. The League is now a very broad church and within this party there are some who openly advocate Italy exit or quitly and are thinking of, you know, some strange... Uh, systems, for example, you know, this idea that you could issue Italian bonds, which you would distribute directly to the population as a way to revamp the economy. This would be, you know, very hard to square with the, with the European fiscal rules. But most importantly, if these bonds were traded and tradable, they would breach the, uh, the requirement that the euro is the sole currency in the country. But this is just one faction within the league. There, are, there is another faction which is very pragmatic, is uh, you know, the former core of the, of the league vote in the north. And actually some of its representatives hold the most important government jobs in the economic sphere which the league has, which I think suggests to me that Salvini still retains a pragmatic attitude when it comes to the economy because he knows that he, he stands on the support of some of the wealthiest part of the country, which trade conspicuously with Germany, which really want to see no bank runs, want to see just, you know, the economy, maybe want to have lower taxes, that's true, but have very little appetite for more uh, dramatic solutions. So while I feel that, you know, Salvini has been, you know, tactically very smart at occupying a very broad spectrum, he could have an incentive later on to tack back to the centre and form, perhaps, after collapsing this particular government, a more traditional centre-right alliance with a very strong anti-immigrant stance, but maybe something which on the economic sphere will be a little bit easier to handle. And just finally, Matthew, Nick concludes in his piece that Italy is in fact a far bigger problem for the EU than Brexit. Do you think he's right? Yes, absolutely. Italy is the third largest economy in the Eurozone. Italy actually has a lot of its own debt within within its own economy. We heard earlier 130% debt to GDP ratio. This is a, a problem that if it escalated, 
from where it is now and you start to see the markets begin to move in a way that they began to move in 2011, then it would be quickly begin to make Brexit look like a bit of a walk in the park for the EU. You know, there's also a lot of economic links between France and Italy. And if you got into that unlikely scenario, unlikely but possible scenario of Italy one day actually leaving the euro, whether this plan B were to materialise under a, a situation of you know, heightened political volatility and you know, perhaps both sides misreading one another, then actually that would also hit the French quite hard and, and you know, it would certainly hit Italian taxpayers incredibly hard. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this, this is a whole different level of political, political gaming. And it is, we have to remember this, it is the first real moment in, in post-war European history where a EU member state has been firmly in the hands of an openly populist coalition government. So, you know, all bets are off, right? I mean, let's just watch how this, how this unfolds. Thank you, Matthew and Fernando. Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk, where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Bryony Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes Store. And finally, what's it like to fall out with your subject when you're writing their biography? That's the situation that biographer Richard Bradford found himself in when he wrote about Martin Amos. Richard joins me now to discuss the relationship between biographer and subject and whether it's easier to write about dead subjects than ones that are alive. So Richard, can you start by telling us how you go about choosing who you write biographies for? A a good question. They pick themselves, really. I began writing biography mainly because I was frustrated with the conventions of academic writing. Most academic books about writers were largely inaccessible. So I decided to go in for literary biography and I thought I'd start with the writers I enjoyed most, Kingsley Amis in terms of fiction and then Philip Larkin. Um, Then it began to expand and I did one on Milton, uh, I did one on Martin Amis, I did one on Alan Silito and for various reasons really. And you talk in your piece about the difference between writing about living people and people who've died. Can, Can you tell us a bit about how you see that difference? It depends on how much material the late author has left behind that is so far undiscovered. One of the most exciting and interesting aspects of writing biographies is messing around in archives, especially when there's been a lot of material that their official biographers and the editors of their letters have thought best to leave out because you wonder why. And then you start discovering why they've left them out, if you see what I mean, especially letters. So yes, deceased, even recently deceased people who've left their estates to archive libraries in the States or in the UK, there is a special interest, a special detective-like appetite there. And you talk in your piece about Martin Amos, who is someone you've written a biography about, and your relationship with him. Can you tell us a bit about that and also how you convinced him to let you write about him? Well, I'd done a biography of Kingsley, as I said, and Martin was quite cooperative because at the time, the Kingsley Amos correspondence 
wasn't catalogued and deposited in the Bodleian as most of it is now. And it was fairly loose. And it, Martin was the executor and he gave me access to it. And I wrote the book using, again, this unpublished material and Martin was quite pleased with it. He did the cover blurb, which was, you know, recommended it quite highly. And eventually, well, we kept in touch and he came over here to do a few guest lectures and he said something like, well, what's next? And I said, how about you? And I, what, what I meant was, what are you writing about? And he seems to have misunderstood me and said, OK, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> so it began entirely by accident. And seem, things seemed to go all right for a while, but it soon became evident that, although he didn't say so, he changed his mind. I don't quite know why, but I suspect he didn't, he, he discovered that he didn't really like me very much. I mean, you say in your piece that he, he Amos tolerated you during your talks, but then his mood changed when you sent him the first draft. What was his response like when you sent him the first draft? It, well, it was more, well, it was more or less, it was exactly the part that I quoted in my article uh, saying, he, he said straightforwardly that, uh, you know, this is appalling and other terms as well you know you are a person of ugly nature as he put it he said that i'd have to rewrite the entire book not simply rephrase parts of the entire book and it already stood at about 170,000 words i think and he demanded an apology uh, by letter and he advised me well instructed me in fact to show the email to my wife it was rather interesting to say the least and just finally, you talk in your piece about Jermaine Greer, who described biographers as vultures. I mean, do you, do you think she's got a point of biographers vultures? Oh, yes, of course. Biography, particularly with literary writers, is an unfortunate necessity because literary biography is the most popular form of writing about writing. I mean, outside academia, the general public don't read critical works they read lives of writers, lives of the sort of writers who interest them. So it's inevitable that people will want to read about the individuals whose work they enjoy. So uh, vultures is one way of putting it, I suppose. And I'm not particularly ashamed of being part of the crew of vultures, really. But as I say in the article as well, I'd rather see myself as the equivalent of Sam Spade, the PI. Thank you, Richard. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do let us know on the iTunes store. You can subscribe, rate and review and let us know what you like and also don't like about this podcast. We always like to hear from you. And if you pick up this week's issue, you'll be able to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as an interview with Lee Child by Sam Leith. There's also the latest issue of Spectator Life, which features Aisha Hazarika on the cover. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.